Okay, turn in your pew Bibles, that's a blue one in front of you, um, page 489, and you'll want to keep your, your Bibles open to uh, that section in Esther chapter 9, uh, for because we're going to be going through all of it in the message this morning. I, I um, oh, for as long as I can remember when it was in the ministry and I'd read the book of Esther, I'd come to chapter 9 and say, what is what is Purim? It's not even mentioned in the New Testament. What does Purim have to do with Christians? Uh, let alone now what I preach on it. Well, this is the day, folks, <laughs> to preach on it. And I hope that uh, the work on this for you as you listen uh, will be as, as much fun as it was for me as I worked on this. So there are Esther chapter 9, and we're going to begin at verse 16. I'm just going to read to verse 28, though. Esther chapter 9 beginning at verse 16 and to verse 28. I am going to change a couple of the words that are in here um, because um, the the translation, it's the word relief, which really is the word rest. And we get the proper name Noah from it. Noah was to give rest to his people. And it's a, it's a Hebrew form of that name Noah. But, but you'll, you'll see as we go through it. Hebrews chapter 9 Uh, beginning at verse 16. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, which would roughly be equivalent to our month of March. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire where this occurred, gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. And therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold that the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and also the fifteenth day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got rest from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they'd started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, It's it's a Persian phrase, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, 
and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called those days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the day appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commendation of those days cease among their descendants. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you say together, Hallelujah, and thanks be Our Lord, that's our whole life, is running to Christ. And so, our Lord, we run to you now, asking that you would send the Spirit, that sevenfold Spirit that comes from the throne in heaven. Please, Lord, send his work in our midst as we deal with not just Purim and what it means for Jews, uh, but, our Lord, what it means in the ultimate sense to all of your people. We pray these things in the name of King Jesus, and we confirm that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. Please be seated. And if you're wanting to take notes, and I think you will, then you're going to want to turn to the next to the last page of your bulletin, page 10. Esther, Esther. Esther is a book about great reversals. Or, to be more exact, even though God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, it is about the God of great reversals. And just think of some of them. Vashti, the Persian queen, is replaced by, she is reversed with Esther, a Jewish. Haman who is out to destroy the Jews and hang Mordecai, and which is really to be impaled on a, a gallows. Haman is replaced by Mordecai, and Haman is the one who's executed. And what we have in this text, because all of Esther builds up to it, destruction of the Jews that is replaced by victory for the Jews. So reversals, 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 the God of reversals throughout. But there's a big one we haven't gotten to yet. Many people have commented on the number of feasts in the book of Esther or banquets. Uh, you have uh, King Ahasuerus who has these feasts as he is building up support for his war with Greece. You read about that early in the book. Now, Esther comes in and, and amazingly enough, she has a couple of feasts that include this guy, Haman, who is the enemy of the Jews. And so it's Persian feasts, it's feasts for the enemies of God's people, it's feasts preparing for battle. And now you have the Jews in this consummate rehearsal 
they have the feast. And it's a feast, interestingly, of victory, okay? So th this is, in a real sense, the whole book culminates in this feast that you read about in Purim. In fact, the, the book of Esther really was, was written to explain to Jews why they had this feast called Purim. So the whole, whole book leads, leads up to that. And it isn't so much he who laughs last laughs best. That's, that's a common way to read this. That is utterly unsatisfying. Now, in any of our earthly experiences, even when there's reversals that are really happy things for us, they don't last. They never fully satisfy. And one of the themes here, as you read throughout the Old Testament, especially at the end, even these good things that God does, even these great reversals God brings, they're not really fully satisfying. And in a dramatic way, you're going to find out in this message, poor him is hardly fully satisfying for the Jews, but we don't want to get, get back, get ahead of ourselves here. So, as we come to this section, remember, but God, God is in back of all. There are no incidents, there are only coincidences where God is at work in everything. This is a micro story, remember, of the macro story, of the micro story, of the whole story of the Bible, the macro story. And the section is again about Purim. What is it? And, and why is it even here? And dare we even ask the question, because Purim is never mentioned in the New Testament, does it have any application for Christians at all? So a lot of interesting things as we come here. A little bit like God in Esther, Purim is never mentioned in the New Testament. But if you don't grasp it, you will not grasp what the message of the New Testament is all about. Wow, that ought to pique your curiosity as we come to this. Okay, and if that hasn't piqued your curiosity enough, here we go. Um, for a Christian sermon... Point number one, you are an obedient, practicing Jew. How's that for a sermon <laughs> to begin with? You are, you are an observant, obedient, practicing Jew. And, and it's good for us to know, uh, because in our area of the United States of America, little, particularly Comac, we deal with a lot of Jewish people. You have Jewish neighbors, Jewish friends, Jewish co-workers. And it's good for you to know a little bit about the, the kind of the structure of, of the way Jews structure their year and what they do. So, so you're, uh, let's think for a minute, you're an obedient and, and, a, and a, a, a practicing Jew. There would be for you then five major feasts, major holidays, major holy days, even called a holiday, it actually just means a good day, but there would be five major feasts that would form your life as a Jew. And these five are all given in the first five books of Moses, known as the Torah. And, and what are they? Well, one is the Passover. And the Passover celebrated the, Lord, the Lord's people being delivered from Egypt and brought through the Red Sea and then brought into the wilderness and ultimately into the Promised Land. So the Passover really was a celebration of their beginning as, as a nation. And then the second of the feasts is called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest in which the Jews celebrated the Lord providing for them, providing food for them. So that was an annual feast that they had. 
The third one is the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, in which the Israelites dwelt in tents for a while in that holiday because it represented how the Lord protected them during their time in the wilderness when they dwelt in tents as they went along the way. The fourth one is the Feast of Trumpets, and the Feast of Trumpets was the beginning of the new year, the beginning of the civil new year. It showed the fact that we're still around, and we still have another year to serve the Lord, and so the Feast of Trumpets. And the last of the major ones was the Feast of the Atonement, uh, once a year when the priest, the high priest, could go in to put blood on the mercy seat. The Feast of Atonement was connected with that. And that reminded Israel that all of the sacrificial system told them literally every moment of every day, you need to have forgiveness of sins. So, so those five feasts, if you're an observant Jew, they're going to be the things you look forward to and you plan for. You may not know as much about them as you know right now, but nevertheless, that's part of your, it's part of your national life. Why? Well, because these feasts describe where you came from and uh, what your life was like and, and, and how God had provided for you. Okay? And, and, and that's, that, that's not unusual. I mean, we have the 4th of July, right? And so we think of how we were born as a nation and the Declaration of Independence. Or we have Memorial Day, where we think about how soldiers gave their lives so that we might have our freedom. Or Labor Day, where we celebrate uh, the, the labor in the United States of America. Or Juneteenth tomorrow, in which we, we celebrate in a real way the end of, of slavery in the United States. And all of these things bound our look at our nation. And, and that's exactly what these, what these feasts were, the five major ones in the Old Testament. Now, there was another one added. Uh, in the second century before Christ, uh, the Israelites had been taken over by the Hellenists, the Greeks, the pagans, under the leadership of a very evil man, Antiochus Epiphanes. He claimed himself to be the epiphany of God, taking over the temple and defiling it. And under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, who was the good guy, uh, the temple is reclaimed and it is cleansed, and it's a feast of lights. You know of that as Chanukah or as Hanukkah. And it happens to come around our Christmas time, but there really is, is no relationship between the two. But again, it's how God preserved them as a nation and their institutions. So Hanukkah is part of that. But then there's also Purim. And Purim is what we read about in this chapter of, of the book of, of Esther. And, and let's go through these verses again. So that, and let me add a few things to it, so you get an idea of what, what Purim is about. So the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces gathered to defend their lives. This was the date at which an edict, law of Medes and the Persians, had been signed. All the Jews could be wiped out by the Persians at will. Genocide, Holocaust. And there was another edict in which the Jews could defend themselves and seek justice, okay? So they gather to defend their lives, and they get rest from their enemies. They kill 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder, because this was holy war. The issue was not gaining property, gaining spoils. It was God intruding into history the way he will judge his own enemies, especially at the last day. This was on the... Th now notice the references to dates. 
This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, roughly our month of March. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. So there's two days here. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Unlike the other feasts, there's a repetition of this that's mentioned. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send their gifts of food to one another. In other words, uh, you, you're wealthy and you give some, as you'll read, to the poor. So Mordecai, and this of course was written after uh, Ahasuerus died, he was assassinated in his own bedroom. Uh, Mordecai and, and, uh, and Esther would have passed off scene, but this was written afterwards to explain what they did. So Mordecai recorded these things, he's now second in command to Ahasuerus, sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got rest from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness. See reversal? and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts for the poor. Here's another reversal. They're wealthy, and they try to reverse the fortunes of the poor by helping them and giving to them. So, so reversal is writ large in Purim. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the, we're not going to forget this, the son of Hamadathah, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor. That's the Persian word, there's an equivalent Hebrew word. This is the Persian word for lot. The lot is cast into the Lord. It's every decision is from the Lord. And as I say, well, well, lot, we don't use that term. Really? Have you ever heard of the lottery? That's what the word is from. There's a decision that's made, and people get, if they win the lottery, that's their allotment. So the lottery is the casting of the lot, so to speak, and then the allotment that comes from it. It's kind of a, a double entendre. But this is the Persian word, which would not have been as familiar to the Jews. They cast poor, that is, they cast lots to crush and to destroy them. Now notice reversal. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan, that is Mordecai's, or humans, that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. There's reversal. Not Mordecai being hung on the gallows, but, but, uh, but Haman and his sons, and the evil that had been plotted against the Jews would be against them. Therefore they called those days Purim, after the term Pur, Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, now notice how firmly this is established in Israel's history. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, 
they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. There is no language that is this repetitive about the importance of a feast given in the Old Testament. It's really remarkable language. And remember, Purim isn't even mentioned in the New Testament, or is it? But, but this, this is the institution of Purim for the Jews. Now, what, what does Purim signify? Two things. One, God will do exactly what he said he's going to do. That, that's the big lesson in all this, and it's part of the reason why this is to be commemorated and not forgotten over and over and over and over again. God has made promises, and he will fulfill them. And we've been over this, but it's good to be reminded of them again. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God says there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's going to come throughout all of history. There will be warfare between God's people, the seed of the woman, those who are in Christ, and the seed of the serpent, those who are not of God. And that will culminate in the crushing of the head of the serpent, but the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman. There would be, there would be something that would come but would be overcome. A bruise can be overcome. Crushed head can't be. So you, you have that, that promise here. Israel is constituted as a nation. Exodus chapter 17, they get their first opposition from the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were the tribe from which his fellow Haman would come from. And God is very clear. These people who have opposed the Lord's people, they become the object lesson of God fulfilling his promise. He says to Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And the, and the token of that, uh, the object lesson of that, is the Amalekites. And God says, I will blot out the name of the Amalekites. Saul comes to be king a few hundred years later, and among his first tasks is to wipe out the Amalekites under the leadership of a man named Agag. And not to take the plunder, because this is holy war, Saul does just the opposite. He takes the plunder, but he doesn't slay all the Amalekites or Agag, and you can read what happens to Agag a little bit later, but God says, Saul, I reject you as king, you didn't do what I called you to do in this holy war. I'll do it. I'll take over, and I'll do it. Fast forward to Esther, Haman, the Agagite, and Agagite, Agag, uh, Haman is defeated, of course, and what happens in Purim is, is a celebration of that. The lot that was cast that was cast for the 11th month in which the, the, the Persians would have free reign to wipe out the Israelites, that lot is reversed so that the Israelites are able to defend themselves and bring about justice against the Persians. So, so God, God is 
going to fulfill his promises, and he does here. But there's a second purpose to this. There's going to be a great reversal. That's embedded in, it's embedded in the name Lot. The Lot that was against us is now a Lot that has fallen to us. And historically, Purim has been understood as one of the applications of what's given in, in, in Psalm 16 and verses 5 and 6. And with good reason. Psalm 16, the Lord is my chosen portion. The language for the portions the Israelites were to give to the poor, reversing their situation, is the same word used here. But now it's the Lord who is my portion, my chosen portion, and my cup. You hold my lot. The Hebrew word for poor, you are the one who holds my lot. Lord, my times are not ultimately in the Persians' hands. They're in yours. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. That also is what Purim is all about. Rest from their enemies, gladness, merriment, and feasting. And so, so this little section of David's psalm has been understood as is very, very much kind of an opening up or an exposition of what Purim is all about. And, and the celebration of Purim in a synagogue is really quite an experience. It comes in March. They do do it now on one day in, in a year. And there's a song. There's actually, I've got a couple songs that brought them together, and I won't sing them. Um, but but there, there are songs that are, that are sung. And, and one of them goes like this, although it's done in Hebrew. And notice again, great reversal. He defeated the designs of heathen nations, Persia, and set to naught their cunning plots. When there arose against us wicked Haman, the arrogant branch of Amalek's stock, glorying in his wealth, he dug his own pit and his high position ensnared him. He sought to trap and was trapped instead. He planned destruction but was himself destroyed. He rose through his wealth and fell through his wickedness. Upon the gallows he built himself, he was hanged. All the world was struck with amazement when Haman's poor, the lot that he cast that said in the 11th month you can go after the Jews, when Haman's poor became our Purim, the lot has fallen to us in pleasant places. The righteous escaped from the hands of the wicked, and instead the enemy was destroyed. See, reversal. The Jews vowed to celebrate Purim each year, for you, God, accepted Mordecai and Esther's prayer, while on the gallows Haman and his sons met their doom. The rose of Jacob was radiant and joyful, when men saw Mordecai, the rose of Jacob is a term for Israel, when people saw Mordecai arrayed in purple, their Savior you have been, their hope in every generation, not the Lord, but Mordecai. You have shown that all who hope in you, now it's to God, will not be disappointed, and all who trust in you will never be put to shame. Cursed be Haman, who sought to destroy me. Now notice the way the Jews have something that we don't. There is a sense of solidarity here 
when they went after, what Haman went after the Jews, they sought to destroy me. Can you think about that with your brothers and sisters in Christ? They go after, you know, like New York. You know, they go after one of us, they go after all of us, right? But that's, that's the idea of solidarity, where we're one with the Lord and his people. Cursed be Haman, who sought to destroy me. Blessed be Mordecai the Jew. Cursed be Zeresh, the wife of my foe. Blessed be Esther, who was a shield for me. And this is so touching. And may Harbona, too, be remembered for good. Who on earth is Harbona? Harbona was the one who, when Ahasuerus is wondering what to do with Haman, said, oh, interestingly, there's a gallows 75 feet high right out of Haman's house. That might be a good place to hang him. And that concept in here of appreciation for those the Lord used to bring justice is mentioned. It's a beautiful example of the song that is you, or two of the songs, that are used during Purim. And Purim, <laughs> when you're, it's quite a raucous thing, not what you'd expect in a synagogue, in, in which uh, they're, they're, all of them have uh, these noisemakers, these things that you turn and they make these horrible noises. And, uh, and, and whenever Haman's name is mentioned, you'll hear, boo, boo, boo. And when, and when, he, when he's executed, it's yay, yay. Yay. So they're really involved in this whole thing, not only in what they sing, and of course the whole book of Esther is read. That's how significant Purim is for, for the Jews. Here's the problem. It's all horizontal. It all has to do with earthly enemies, and it is not ultimately satisfying. In fact, for the Jews... Esther has become a source of tremendous bewilderment and perplexity. I want to fast forward about 2,500 years from when Esther was written, some 500 years before the birth of Christ. You're still a Jew. I want you to imagine that. It's now 1942 A.D. Your address is one of these places. Dachau, Treblinka, Auschwitz, Begin Belzen, Buchenwald, Ravensbrück. You see the dilemma? You're a Jew and you have Esther and you still try to celebrate Purim. But you're watching your fellow Jews sent to gas chambers. You think you could smell smoke from Canadian wildfires? They smelled the smell of the smoke of human flesh. And they could taste that smoke from the ashes, ashes of human flesh in their own mouths. And you are the people who have Esther is your book. One person writing about that experience and actually using something that's been used as an argument for God's existence, but just with a, with a different dress. These are the kinds of questions we deal with, our, where are you with God meetings. But 
one person writing about that experience said as the Jews wrestled with this, God who protected them and who fulfills his promises and had given them promises, why did this happen? And she expressed the dilemma in this way. If this God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he could have prevented the Holocaust. If he was unable to stop it, he is impotent and useless. If he could have stopped it and chose not to, he is a monster. People say the same things today about the problem of evil in the world. I want you to revel in the fact that God is well aware of this argument. God is not unaware of these ways of assailing him. A holocaust literally means whole burning. It's the term for a whole burnt offering. You know what Good Friday is about? Good Friday is about the holocaust that came on the Lord Jesus Christ the Jew. And again, you've got to be very careful how you understand this, but it's nevertheless true when you understand it properly. The God-man became Haman on the cross. Not that he sinned. Not that he was an antagonist of the Jews. But he took that sin on him on the cross. It's no coincidence that that 75-foot gallows was a place in which someone was not hung, but impaled. And God, as it were, said, I will take the challenge of your seeing this holocaust, and I'll put holocaust on my own son, and he will become the burnt offering for all Jews and all Gentiles who seek their refuge in him. In fact... In him, that holocaust will be satisfied for them. That's the meaning of Good Friday, everybody. Okay? So, so, again, we're not taking lightly those that have lost loved ones in the holocaust. But, but imagine, imagine the Jews knowing in time that about one-fourth of the Jewish population of the world had been killed. All right? One person wrote so well, the divine Messiah of the Jews took up the moral agony of Auschwitz and every other atrocity perpetrated against the human race, whether Jews or Gentiles. Whatever moral challenge you or anyone else raises against God, God rises to that challenge. And he gives the only satisfactory answer that can be given. And of course, the Jews were not completely wiped out, were they? 
So the Lord was still fulfilling his promises here, but that's for another day. What about Purim and Christians? Is there no mention of Purim in the New Testament? Well, not specifically. But notice the language again that you read in Esther chapter 9, verse 16 and verse 22. The Jews attained rest. They attained rest. And another thing that's very interesting to notice is the way the Holy Spirit, through the writer of Isaiah, mentions these dates over and over again. And not just one date, but several of them. Purim doesn't celebrate a battle day. Good Friday is a battle day where the Lord Jesus did battle with the devil and disarmed him and his power by the cross. Bastille Day for the French is a, is a battle day, or, or believe it or not, Cinco de Mayo for our Hispanic friends. That, that's a battle day. Purim's not a battle day. Purim's a victory day. Purim is the equivalent in the Old Testament of VE Day, victory in Europe, or VJ Day, victory in Japan. This is VP Day, victory over Persia. And that rest, that rest, notice again the language, they got rest from their enemies. That rest points us forward to another name for rest in the Old Testament. It's called Sabbath. And it points forward to what we call the Lord's Day Sabbath, which is in fact a day of rest. What is that day? After the great battle of Good Friday, yes, Jesus, three days and three nights, there's ways you can compute it properly, but practically speaking, you have the death of Christ, and right after, in the work of redemptive history, Jesus is raised from the dead, and he ushers in that everlasting Sabbath in which is no more death, because I live, Jesus says, you will live also. See the solidarity? Jews see their solidarity with Mordecai and with Esther and with the Jews. Do you see your solidarity with Christ? Because I live, you shall live also. Great day of celebration is the Lord's Day Sabbath. It's interesting that Jesus didn't fast. He did fast before. They feasted on the Lord's Day. The end of that day for them was a time of feast together with his disciples. It was a time, to use the language of the text, of feasting and gladness. It was a holiday. It was all of those things that are mentioned here in shadow form in the Purim observance. It all, as it gave rest to their, from their enemies here, the Lord gives rest to us. So that's why... And, and, and here, brothers and sisters, we don't, we don't take church history and put it on par with the Bible. But we really suffer from a lot of historical amnesia in American evangelicalism. We think of the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as what can I do or not do on the Lord's day if I even honor it. That's not the way the early church addressed this at all. 
You read this in the book of Hebrews, where there's a profound view of the Sabbath that we enter into in Christ. That is, on the Sabbath, there remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. There is a foretaste of what the eternal Sabbath will be. And that's why in the profound view of the Lord's Day Sabbath that marked the early church, there wasn't fasting. There were many other days of fasting. It was a day of feasting. I would suggest that's probably a pretty strong argument for the Lord's Supper every week on Sunday. Because the Lord's Supper is a feast. It is a remembrance. It has all of these marks in it, as you'll learn a little bit later. It's a day of gladness. It's a day of celebration of Christ's victory over evil. And yes, it is a day of rest. It's a day of rest from all of those things that otherwise just exhaust us in the battles with the world. And we have our rest in Christ. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? And do you see how impoverished our view of the Lord's day has become? And we could do a whole lot more with that. And so, if you will... 1 Corinthians chapter, well, actually, I, the, this, this is fascinating because we were called to, we were called to worship from, uh, from the book of Revelation. Imagine this on the Lord's Day Sabbath, which John experiences on Patmos. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And Jesus speaks to him and says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one, I died. And behold, here's Purim, great reversal. I am alive forevermore. And I have, not Persia, not Haman, I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Why does he say this? Because God has promises. and He's going to fulfill them. That's Purim. That's the Lord Jesus on this Lord's Day Sabbath. May I call it that? This Lord's Day Purim, okay, when Jesus spoke. Now, here's the thing, though. This matter of the days is interesting. Why, why two days? And why this language that, that almost gives the impression you should never forget Purim, as it's established in, in Esther chapter 9. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul speaks about the fulfillment of Purim. This perishable body, reversal, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body, reversal, must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That, folks, that's the ultimate reversal. Are you part of that? See, you're part of solidarity. You're part of that in union with Christ. Why is that so important? Quite frankly, if you want reversal from death to life, it is supremely important. It's the only way you get it. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's Purim? 
victory, victory day, VP day, victory in Persia day. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, from the middle of the story right now until the end of the story, when this comes at Jesus' return, you keep following the Lord faithfully. And Purim was designed to teach the Jews you keep staying faithful basically every single day. And my suggestion to you is why there's more than one day mentioned for Purim is it's a way of saying what we know now. It's not enough to celebrate the Sabbath once. How about every week? On every week, the emphasis is on remembrance. On every week, remembrance of victory over the devil day, right? Victory over sin day. The great victory that's not first horizontal. Remember, Jesus was crucified, but it's first vertical because in his crucifixion, he disarmed the devil. And I just suggest to you that you think, I can't give you this as an infallible interpretation, but it's helpful to me. Multiple days of Purim, multiple days of Sabbath feasting, gladness, rest, Jesus giving himself to us, the poor, that we might give ourselves to others. And multiple days of our own Purim in which the lot that would be to us for our destruction is reversed for our own everlasting benefits. A glorious thought when you think about what Purim is in relation to the scriptures, okay? I want to ask you if you are settling for mere horizontals. By nature, that's what you'll do. You'll settle for the lot that falls to you in life. You may be happy with it, you may be unhappy with it, but basically that's all you're going to do is settle for the horizontals. If you come to grips with the macro story, that's a story about God and what he's done in history to bring about the great reversal as you read in the book of Esther, have you? See, that's what this is all about. This is not about, I've accepted Jesus into my heart so that I might live happily ever after and sing some happy gospel songs and be happy all my day. In fact, you probably won't be happy all your day. You probably have a lot of days of sorrow and sadness. But if you're part of the macro story, you'll get on each week at the supper and on the Sabbath, the Lord's Day Sabbath, you'll get something of a foretaste of our everlasting rest. And then when Jesus comes back, that will be the full reversal of all things. What God intruded into history, dealing with one group of his enemies, he'll do dealing with all of his enemies. And what God does in history, parceling out Purim's rest to his people in their lifetimes, It'll be consummated in glory in what we know of as the everlasting Sabbath. And that text that the Jews knew had something to do with Purim because it included the language of the lot and the portion, you'll see that fulfilled. And you'll read it like this. The Lord was 
my chosen portion. And he was my cup. He has held me. And he now gives me my lot. The lines have fallen out to me in eternally and perfect, pleasant places. Indeed, I'll paraphrase it. I now have a perfectly satisfying inheritance. Do you have that? that, that that's what the gospel's all about. And the way you get it, you surrender your little micro story to the great macro story of the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered, who took a holocaust at himself that he might deliver you from the holocaust of everlasting death. What a, what a glorious gospel. Let's pray. And now, our Lord, we thank you for the lesson, not just the lessons that are embedded in this part of Esther, but the way they are there, the, the repetition that's given, the, the emphasis on the days of Purim, and, and the emphasis on over and over and over and over again having this. And, and Lord, we know that to just look at this horizontally will be disappointing uh, because many, many Jews have been wiped out in history. You didn't always do exactly what you did here. But this is a micro story. It's a shadow. And the reality of the Messiah who would come, who would take the Holocaust in himself, wow, in him all of these glories of your promises are fulfilled. And yes, at that last day, we will learn that not one of the promises that you made in Scripture has fallen. All are yes and amen in Jesus now, and all will be yes and amen for all eternity. We bless you for that. Teach us the wonderful, by your grace, we pray that you would show us every day and form us every day so that we surrender our horizontal story and embrace the vertical story that will take us to be with you in glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.